Previously on Flying the Line, the Union pilots of National Airlines won a hard-fought battle after a prolonged strike. But little did they know, the war they were fighting against CEO George Baker was far from over. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 15, The Fall of Dave Banky, Part 1. Some kinds of history are easier to write than others. A history based on oral sources, such as this one, comprises not only memories gone astray, but also the highs and lows in the lives of its notables. Happiness, the flush of victory, and calm satisfaction are emotions that are fine to remember and wonderful for setting the fires of enthusiasm dancing in the eyes of those who have seen their share of seasons. These emotions are also fine for a historian. Good vibrations resonate easily across long gaps of time, and it's easy to feel them and share the good old times with those who remember them so well. But what about the bad times? They are as much a part of the story as the good ones, but they don't rekindle the friendly fires of yesteryear. Rather, they bring pain and pursed lips, sudden awkward silences, wrinkled brows, and even deliberate evasions, the kind designed to stifle memory and to bury things that, hard enough to live through, are no easier to remember. Such a time was the ouster of Dave Banky from the presidency of ALPA. Not once, in all the interviews that make up this history, have those who participated in the ouster expressed any sentiment other than sorrow. The pilots who removed Banky from office liked the old man, deeply respected him for what he had done, and hoped against hope that he would see that his time had passed and that he must make way for a new day. They all agreed that by trying to hang on, Dave Banky was destroying not only Alpa, but himself as well. But Dave Banky didn't know how to do anything but fight. He had been fighting all his life, and he couldn't stop. By 1950, Alpa was entering a new era of high technology and rapid change. The association claimed approximately 6,000 dues-paying members and was at the apex of an industry that was growing faster than anybody would have believed possible just a few years earlier. So far as inner-city passenger transportation was concerned, the handwriting was already on the wall. The railroads must inevitably give way to aviation. The new world of commercial aviation was a big one, and Dave Banky was increasingly lost in it. His worst failing in these years was an utter inability to delegate authority. The 1944 convention had authorized a full professional structure for ALPA, consisting of 11 departments. Among the 44 people employed full-time by ALPA, a fair number were professionals who should have been allowed to manage as they saw fit. But Banky had to have a hand in everything that went on in every department, usually even minute details. 
Even worse was Banky's habit of becoming fixated on particular problems. For example, the early troubles of the Martin 202 caused Banky to devote far too much time to engineering problems. He habitually ordered Alpa staffers to drop everything to help when a critical problem arose. Although that might have been justified occasionally, Banky did it constantly. A measure of dissatisfaction with Banky's leadership was already manifest by 1947 when Willis Proctor of American Airlines challenged Banky during the convention. Proctor's bid for the presidency was the first serious challenge to Banky since the early days, when most pilots favored Frank Ormsby for the permanent presidency of ALPA. Ormsby almost single-handedly organized Pan-American World Airways pilots in 1931 and got fired for his trouble. Banky subsequently hired Ormsby to be ALPA's Washington representative. He was so effective that many early pilots thought he was a better choice than Banky for the ALPA presidency. Ormsby was, after all, unemployed, so he wouldn't have to give up a job as Banky would. And Ormsby was extraordinarily sharp. He was the first to suggest, among other things, that the focus of ALPA's activities in the early 1930s should be Washington, not feudal and dangerous strike confrontations spread around the country. He also argued from the very beginning that ALPA should concentrate on securing a pilot's amendment to the Railway Labor Act of 1926. Banky subsequently adopted both of Ormsby's ideas, although he delayed much too long in the latter. Ormsby's powers of intellection, persuasion, and analysis were formidable. He had something else going for him, something Banky couldn't help but envy. Ormsby had received the Congressional Medal of Honor in combat during World War I as a naval aviator. In 1934, Banky fired Ormsby on trumped-up charges of conduct unbecoming a member. Banky's jealousy of Ormsby and his fear that Ormsby might be a competitor for the leadership of ALPA led him to the first significant display of the kind of vindictiveness that would later become more evident, and it left many early airline pilots feeling uneasy about Banky's mental balance. They knew perfectly well that Ormsby had been guilty of nothing more than doing an excellent job, and that this excellence had inspired Banky's jealousy. Given Banky's irrational reaction to the Ormsby affair, Willis Proctor's challenge in 1947 was pure deja vu, even to Banky's preferring charges against him for conduct unbecoming a member after the convention was over. An immediate and angry reaction, particularly among the massive American Airlines membership, forced Banky to abandon his vendetta against Proctor. Proctor was a weak candidate for the ALPA presidency in any case, for he was even older than Banky, and a great many younger American airline pilots were lukewarm about his candidacy. Were it not for the survivors who remember the Proctor challenge, historians today would have no way of ever knowing it happened. Banky erased all mention of it from most ALPA records, including the periodical publication the airline pilot. The big question on everybody's mind by the late 1940s was Banky himself. Things were not going well with ALPA. 
contract negotiations were generally deadlocked everywhere. And Alba's administration was suffering from Banky's increasingly eccentric paperwork. Banky seemed unreceptive to new ideas, particularly those of younger leaders emerging from the local councils. Something had to be done about the old man, but what? In one of those compromises that foreshadowed the end while seeking to avoid it, the 1947 convention mandated changes in the ALPA administrative structure, the most important being the new office of executive vice president. The delegates to the 1947 convention envisioned this new officer as one who would handle ALPA's day-to-day affairs, relieving Banky for more general work. In short, the membership was already trying to kick Banky upstairs to less taxing work, to make him the de facto president emeritus as early as 1947. The 1947 convention, the first one held since 1944, took place at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago in February. Aside from mandating the new office that would eventually be filled by Banky's successor, Clarence Sayan, the 99 delegates to the 1947 convention also made changes in ALPA's governance that would be important in Banky's ouster. The most important change was the creation of the executive board to replace the old Central Executive Council, which had begun as an ad hoc advisory group in the early 1930s, and became only slightly more regular as the years passed. The new executive board was composed of two representatives from each airline, a captain and a co-pilot. This arrangement proved cumbersome owing to the large number of people involved, so the 1950 convention reduced its size by 50%. A single delegate would represent each airline under the 1950 revision, with a captain and a co-pilot alternating each year. Banky agreed to the creation of the office of executive vice president, although he really had no choice, but he didn't like it, and he delayed filling that position for over a year. Even after he selected Sayan, a Braniff co-pilot for the office, Banky continued pretty much as he had before. So the old problems of tardy paperwork, inadequate attention to important matters, an excessive concern with minor ones continued to plague Alpa. And Banky's health kept getting worse. In 1949, he was in and out of the hospital on several occasions and had lost a lot of weight. The frustrations with Banky's failings as a leader were fed by considerable concern among the membership over technological unemployment. The new, faster aircraft coming rapidly into service in the late 1940s had reduced the need for pilots. Junior pilots commonly faced furlough, and the problem was on everybody's mind. Banky was the focus of much exasperation among junior ALPA members, partly because he seemed incapable of formulating a workable solution, and partly because his ideas seemed totally inadequate, even archaic. Banky forced an industry-wide deadlock in contract negotiations over what he called the mileage limitation. It was reminiscent of the deadlock that brought on the 1946 transcontinental and western airstrike, but by 1950, the membership was in no mood to endure a strike that would not result in a permanent solution to the problem. 
Essentially, the proposal measured workloads on all new aircraft against what a pilot could accomplish in the DC-3, which Banky still insisted, as late as 1951, was the standard airliner. If a pilot could fly a DC-3 at 160 miles per hour under the guideline of 85 hours a month established by Decision 83, Banky reasoned he could legally fly 13,600 miles per month. Banky therefore proposed a new negotiating standard for all future ALPA contracts that would contain this mileage limitation regardless of the type of aircraft. A pilot might fly more passengers in a DC-6 than in a DC-3, but he would not fly them any more miles. This would reduce pilot workloads, reduce technological unemployment, and probably lead to the hiring of more pilots. There wasn't a chance in the world that the airlines would ever agree to the mileage limitation. Many airline pilots thought the reasoning behind it was faulty even though it was clear enough in its direction and would obviously accomplish some of ALPA's purposes. Remember, most airline pilots were as committed to the abstract idea of progress as they were to the well-being of their respective airlines. The mileage limitation idea was clearly backward-looking, and it bothered many pilots. The jets were already something more than a gleam in the eye of aircraft manufacturers. What would be the effect of a 13,600-mile-per-month limitation once these aircraft became a reality? So Banky got nowhere when he began proposing mileage limitation during contract negotiations in 1947 and 1948. By 1950, every ALPA contract in the nation had lapsed, owing to Banky's dogged determination to include the mileage limitation. Also, for the first time in the memory of ALPA old-timers, there were rumbles in the local councils that Banky was out of his league. As ALPA's contracts with every airline in the nation began to expire, the mileage limitation, or mileage increase determination, as Banky had labeled it, was the millstone dragging down everything else. The airline stood ready to negotiate such issues as gross weight pay a monthly minimum guarantee, landing pay, deadhead pay, even the long-sought new method of computing co-pilot pay. It all came to a head at American Airlines. Their pilots, doggedly loyal to Banky's line at that point, voted overwhelmingly to strike. On January 13, 1951, Acting under terms of the Railway Labor Act to prevent a shutdown, President Truman appointed an emergency board. The hearings, which lasted until April 27, 1951, covered excessively complex issues, but no agreement between ALPA and American Airlines management emerged during the hearings. But while the hearings were in session, things began unraveling for Dave Banke, and a revolution was in the making. The catalyst in Banky's downfall was the ALPA professional staff. Tired of the continuous operations at all hours of the night and day with no overtime pay, of Banky's bullying, and of being away from their homes for weeks at a time with regular vacations and impossible dream, 
they decided to form their own union, the Alpa Professional Employees Association. Banky angrily refused to recognize them, so they planned a strike, warning senior pilots of the chaotic conditions Banky was causing before the staff went on strike. The emergency board was in the midst of its work when the employees met with the Committee of Senior Pilots, which in turn approached Banky about the professional employees' grievances. A stormy session followed, during which Banky insisted that only a couple of troublemakers were responsible for the problem. He said that he would sign a contract specifying reasonable working conditions for ALPA employees, but he refused to do so immediately. Instead, he directed Clarence Sayan to handle the problem. The next day, Dave Banky suddenly left New York, returned to Chicago, and checked into a hospital. He issued orders to Sayan to discontinue ALPA participation in the emergency board hearings, canceled all credit arrangements at the hotel where ALPA's dumbfounded employees had been staying, and ordered the staff to return to Chicago. Banky was, in short, breaking off ALPA's participation in a major presidential emergency board while it was in full progress, at a time when it would have had significant impact on the nation owing to the Korean War. An ad hoc committee of ALPA's biggest guns, including first Vice President Jerry Wood, rushed to New York to straighten out the mess. They were determined that the board was going to proceed with or without Banky. Banky was becoming a liability that somebody had to do something about. But who? And how? By the time of the American Airlines Presidential Emergency Board, concern among ALPA members from many different airlines was strong. Most of it came from the men who held office in ALPA and who were consequently aware of the deteriorating situation. Against their will, these men were rapidly becoming revolutionaries. There's no other word for it. At the time of Banky's bizarre breakdown before the emergency board, there were two separate governing bodies in ALPA. When one captain and one co-pilot from every local council, no matter how small, assembled on command of the national headquarters, they were officially the convention. When this constituency voted by mail ballot, it became the board of directors. In either guise, these individuals were the supreme authority in ALPA. By their very nature, these bodies were incapable of decisive action because there were infrequent meetings and little communication between members and because the vast majority of their members were not aware of affairs outside their own airlines in order to understand the magnitude of the breakdown at the top. Only the executive board was capable of decisive action, but its mandate was vague, consisting of a single pilot representative from each airline, whether large or small. The executive board was essentially an interim advisory committee. Six tiny airlines with a handful of pilots could match the representatives of the six largest airlines, representing over 90% of ALPA's membership. The executive board was, in short, a fragile vessel from which to launch a revolution against Banky. But it was the only one available. Banky had generally made little use of the executive board. Few members on it knew each other, and even ALPA's first vice president didn't have a list of addresses. 
Should concerned ALPA members try to use the executive board to remove Banky, they would face formidable legal obstacles. For the recall provision in ALPA's constitution and bylaws was cumbersome, requiring several steps and much time and expense. Indeed, the executive board lacked even autonomy, since it could not call itself into session. Should Banky refuse to call a meeting, the executive board could not assemble no matter how chaotic the situation became. Then fate played into the hands of the revolutionaries. Partly because Banky thought he had more support on the small airlines than the large ones, he announced a meeting of the executive board in Chicago on June 12, 1951. The immediate cause of Banky's announcement was the Presidential Emergency Board's finding against ALPA's position on the mileage limitation in its final report which appeared two weeks earlier, and he wanted input as to the possibility of a nationwide strike. When the members of the executive board began assembling at the Sherry Hotel in Chicago, anxious ALPA professional employees sought them out. Most of the board members had no direct knowledge of the staff's circumstances, its attempt to form a union, or the previous attempt of a group of senior captains to mediate between the staff and Banky. Several of the board members knew how serious the breakdown at the top was, but they played a close hand, allowing the remaining members to learn for themselves. The ALPA employees were the teachers. Among the 20 pilots who answered the roll call at the board's session, seven were convinced as to what was needed, and they planned to focus the board's attention on ALPA itself not the Presidential Emergency Board's rejection of the mileage limitation that Banky had called them together to consider. Almost immediately after the roll call, the board members insisted on hearing the full story of the ALPA employees' grievances. Banky resisted but was unable to prevent the passage of a resolution calling for the creation of a committee to survey the general management and business affairs of the association. The resolution called for the committee to report no later than July 2nd, and it also permitted the board itself to remain in continuous session until then. The revolutionaries were not going to allow Banky to simply refuse to call them back into session and thereby defuse the special investigating committee's findings. Charlie Ruby, a member of the board, helped to persuade Banky that he would have to accept this committee's existence. Banky insisted that he be allowed to appoint the committee, but Ruby argued him out of it. The Special Investigating Committee had the authority to look into all areas of ALPA's business, including one that was rapidly becoming infamous. The new building located on the edge of Chicago's Midway Airport. The idea of an ALPA building had obsessed Banky for years. The 1947 convention approved $250,000 for it, thus fulfilling Banky's dreams. As the committee investigated further, it found that the building itself was one of Banky's major problems. Many committee members suspected that Banky's sidewalk supervising at the building site caused the lengthy administrative delays in ALPA's paperwork. Banky wanted the building to be extraordinary built to aircraft specifications. His outrageous demands, such as lining up the nuts, bolts, and screws with north and south and recutting expensive marble, exceeded the budget the convention had approved by as much as sevenfold. 
Banky wanted the building to be a monument to his leadership. Ironically, it would become more like a tomb. The committee discovered that Banky had been able to spend money never appropriated by the convention because Alpa had no budget. There was virtually no internal control on expenditures, and Treasurer Bob Strait habitually signed blank checks because his predecessors always had. This was unorthodox, but not criminal. Nobody ever accused Banky of fraud. Instead, it was a case of inefficiency, confusion, waste, and most of all, an unchecked president so involved with day-to-day construction of his dream building that he had lost contact with reality. The investigating committee explored ways of improving Alba's administration by consulting with Dr. Alexander Livwright, director of the Union Leadership Project at the University of Chicago. They considered keeping Banky on as president while removing him as a source of delays and confusions. Livwright pointed out the difficulties of this approach. Nevertheless, the investigating committee couldn't bring itself to recommend removing Banky. Instead, it made one last desperate try to save the old man's pride. It came up with the idea of Banky as a powerless figurehead, a president emeritus who would serve at full salary for life. By the time the investigating committee finished its work, Banky was in Washington. Grant LaRue of Pan American was the chairman of the committee, so it was his responsibility to let Banky know its conclusions. Banky refused to return his calls or answer his letters. The message was clear. Banky was going to dig in and fight. Next time on Flying the Line, against all odds, Alpa's first president continues his fight to maintain his position as the battle for leadership enters the courtroom. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 15 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.